0: This is John Wilkerson from thewiredhomeschool.com, and you're listening to Beyond the Box with your hosts, Steve Sensenig and Rayburn Johnson.
1: I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt. recline your chair. Throw caution to the wind. And get ready for the ride that is Beyond Beyond the the Box. (laughs) Welcome back, everybody, to Beyond the Box. It is great to be back with you today. Today, we're going to be starting part two of a three-part series that we've entitled The Slavery of Death. So I suggest if you haven't listened to part one yet that you go back and do that now, because I think it's going to make a lot more sense if you listen to all three parts in order. Now, this three-part series, The Slavery of Death, is a very, I guess, condensed version of a 31-part series of... On Richard Beck's blog entitled Experimental Theology that he did on the slavery of death. Dr. Richard Beck is the chair of the psychology department at Abilene Christian University and in this 31 part series entitled The Slavery of Death he really brings together a lot of things for me that tended not to click in the past. Um, It's just really a great interface between psychology and theology taking the work of people like Ernest Becker and Walter Wink and Arthur McGill and tying it in with things like Eastern Orthodox theology and just really helps to make a lot of things mesh together for me. So I hope you guys are going to enjoy it half as much as I enjoyed recording it. Richard, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I look forward to many more conversations in the future. I'm going to get out of the way now so that you can enjoy this conversation with Dr. Richard Beck. This one's entitled, The Denial of Death. Well, everybody, welcome back to Beyond the Box. I am so excited again to have with me Dr. Richard Beck from Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. Welcome once again to the podcast. We didn't scare you off the first time. That's always a good sign.
0: No, glad to be back.
1: <laughs> um, in the first podcast, we kind of started talking about your blog series, The Slavery of Death, which I think is is it 31 posts. Is that right? I
0: think it ended up being about 31 posts. It ended up
1: being 31 posts. You know, I, I think I started... I think when it was like 30, I printed it out. And then two or three days later after I printed, I saw another one. I was like, oh, man. The series (laughs) never ended. I'm like, I'm going to have to just keep printing here. (laughs) But, oh, my gosh, if you keep putting out stuff of this quality, you just keep throwing out those posts as much as you want to. Um, In the first one, we kind of set up the problem of not only that it's not so much just the fear of death, but that there's a slavery to the fear of death. That and and we talked a lot about the uh, difference between the Orthodox and Protestant views of how um, the 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 Protestants tended to go with Augustine's understanding of original sin versus the Orthodox view of ancestral sin, mm-hmm. and we kind of we kind of talked about that the problem was our mortality fears, right? The idea that it's not just sin that leads to death. But it's actually death that leads to sin, and that because of those mortality fears, we get into this Darwinian struggle for survival that makes us kind of um, almost by necessity, in some ways, uh, be selfish and and kind of self-serving. Mm-hmm. So today we're going to get into a lot here. We've got a, we've got a lot of material that we want to cover, but we've dubbed this episode the denial of death after Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death, which mm-hmm. you're pulling heavily from. In the slavery to the fear of death series, um, and when you and when you started talking about this, I think this is part around part eleven, I believe, in your series. Um, when you started talking about this, you introduced a term, the pornography of death,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I, I found that really, I found that really interesting, the pornography of death, because I've never really thought about how even our language, the way we talk, even the words that we consider curse words. That's always been kind of a, a mind-boggling thing for me. Yeah, I've always wondered why are certain words off limits uh, in the English language. You know, why are we bothered by some words and not by others? And you really show in the series that there is this, there's this thing where we try and hide death. That we, that our, that our fear of death is not just an outward Darwinian struggle where there's not enough bread to go around. And so we have to fight other people, mm-hmm. but because we live in a first world country, especially that are those, those fears become neurotic. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of unpack that for us?
0: Yeah. Uh, let, 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 I can start with the, the, with the pornography of death. That's, that's a, that's a term um, I believe um, uh, I might not get his name, right. Jeffrey uh, Gore uh, wrote a kind of influential essay and and in it, he basically makes the argument that death has become um, illicit. It's, it's, it's nothing that uh, we don't – like pornography, we don't want to bring these things up in polite company. And, and, and part of that is just because how uh, – the, just the changes in the modern world, our relationship to death has changed dramatically. The food industry – has separated us from our our our, our uh, the, the death that's associated with our food products, and so we don't see the animals killed. So we we and, uh, the the food doesn't look like an animal anymore. A chicken McNugget doesn't look anything like a chicken, you know. Um,
1: so you, is a chicken McNugget even a chicken? <laughs>
0: right, right, right. So so even even our food doesn't even remind us of death. It doesn't look yeah. like anything, so we can pretend it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, the, uh, one of my favorite little anecdotes I tell is, is, is how, um, you know, we used to die in our homes and, um, the wakes would be in our homes and we would be buried in the, in the cemetery next to our churches and the churches doubled as schoolyards. And so we would walk through or by cemeteries on the way to church and, um, on the way to school. Um, uh, the, the city meetings would be in that building as well. But, but when, um, but when modern, hospitals got invented people started dying in hospitals and um and because of that uh the you know people didn't know where to take the dead bodies uh, it seemed seemed strange to bring them back home so they would uh so instead of taking them home they they you know you saw the rise of the funeral home so the bodies were taken to the funeral home so we were not dying at home anymore um we weren't the, the wakes were in, were not in the home they were they took place somewhere else and eventually what happened is um, uh, we, we uh, renamed the parlors. I think it was Women's Day magazine um, said that we should name the parlors the living room. And so, so, so oh. the, the, de- the dead had even been expelled from our, our homes. And, and so in a sense, w- with all of these changes from food to the funeral industry to modern medicine – um, what what has happened in, in in the world today is we can kind of pretend that death doesn't exist and live with this illusion that we we have all the time in the world and that we're we're somewhat I- immortal and and obviously that's a fantasy but so much of modern American life particularly kind of exploits or tries to capitalize on that illusion. Uh, mm from dyeing our hair to the cosmetic industry to the plastic surgery to, to, you know, to the belief that if you could just drink filtered water, you'll live forever. I mean, there's all these kinds of things where we think, you know, that somehow we're going to crack this thing and death could be avoided. And so, so the pornography of death is just kind of a, it's kind of just a nice label to describe kind of the modern culture of death avoidance that characterizes most Americans. And so what happens is, like you said, our, our, our slavery to death is not a primal fear anymore. Um, but it is more neurotic. It is more an underlying anxiety that has been largely repressed, but it's still churning beneath the surface, surface and, and, and creating a lot of still sinful activity. Um, but but it, this might be harder to put our finger on the slavery of death in the modern context, because it seems like our technology and our wealth has insulated us from death. And so therefore we think we got it licked, but the argument that people like Ernest Becker make in his book is that we haven't really got it licked. It's, it's Mm -hmm. still there rumbling beneath the surface.
1: It's almost like we, we uh, buy into the live immortality. You mentioned this in the series that it's almost like, especially in America, especially in first world countries, we almost look at death as unnatural. Yeah. As if, as if we're surprised that someone died mm-hmm. and yet, you know, studies still show that one out of one people die, you know, yeah, right. yeah. 10 out of 10 still die. Right. So, you know, it's just, um, it, it's almost like with what you're saying with the funeral homes, the hospitals that we're trying to, that it's an attempt to completely drive death away from our consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, completely out of our minds. Um, you, you had a couple of quotes that I wanted to mention in light of that. You said we are we are enslaved to death because we can't see what is going on. We can't see how we are serving death every single day. So, with this neurotic fear of death, how does that play out into the idea that we that we really are serving death every single day?
0: Yeah, and I think that's where um, that's where the the work of Ernest Becker uh, really comes in. Um, and Becker, Becker's argument um, uh, is that the human the human predicament is 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 impossible because we have the conscious capacity to realize that moment by moment day by day we're inexorably being drawn towards our ultimate demise and that obviously but that then triggers in us the animal instinct for survival and so we're kind of caught in between those two we can and and so the only way to resolve that dilemma according to Becker, is to some way um, attach our lives to something permanent, something that might transcend or outlast us. And so his argument is that what happens is cultures get invented, uh, value systems, ways of life get invented, and, and these cultures are ultimately you know, defined by creating kind of transcendent goods or, or projects that I can attach my life story to, and when I attach my life story to these things, um, I get a sense of permanence, transcendence. My life, you know, is, is the, the, the the efforts of my life are going to outlive myself. And then, and and, and so, um, what happens is is that I as I go through my day, as I I work and I um, reg- monitor my self esteem in relation to, you know, my paycheck or. I'm comparing myself to other people Um, that at the end of the day, why I'm, why I'm engaging in those comparisons, why I'm caught up in that rat race is according to Becker driven by this anxiety that, that um, my life uh, won't matter. And so my quest for meaning and significance um, is, is at, at root driven by still by an anxiety. Now I'm not aware of that. All I'm aware of is, uh, that I'm feeling better about myself or worse about myself in relation to how my culture defines the good life, uh, in that sense, and so, so yeah, we have to get to the work of Ernest Becker to understand how my day-to-day, you know, uh, evaluations of myself and my life um, are actually being driven by death anxiety.
1: Yeah, this culture cultural hero system that that Ernest Becker talks about, I found that really fascinating because it's like you know we all you know, even as Christians, we've been taught that we were made for meaning and significance. And, mm-hmm. and so it's almost like, it's almost like there's this bait that's even given us within the church to seek meaning and significance. But what we don't realize is that's always defined by someone other than God. Right. Um, you talk about, and and you kind of get into this a little bit later in the series, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but, um, I'm probably going to murder this term, but the deuce ex machina, I guess, which is a Latin term. Uh, basically uh, yeah. the, is that how you say it? Is that,
0: you know, I'm not, I, the, yeah, the the deuce ex machina, I'm not sure.
1: Something like that. <laughs> I, I guess it's something that Peter Rollins really yeah, <laughs> really yeah. went but after.
0: Somebody was, I was asking my friend who's better at Latin and things like that about that. But yeah, I don't have, I don't have a lot. But
1: kind of, kind of the idea is that there's, there's a God that we create um that's totally a creation of our own culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, this and this I mean, especially in America you can see this, and especially maybe even more so in the South than anywhere else, because of the patriotic uh overlays that get thrown into church. You know, Fourth of July Sunday, you've got the the Christian flag and the American flag side by side and tributes to the veterans and all of this kind of thing. So that we almost get this God that's a God and country type God. Mm-hmm. So what we end up doing is this this God um Begins to do the same thing the culture's doing in giving us defined ways of finding meaning and significance mm-hmm. that are really just part of the larger cultural system.
0: Right. So, yeah. I
1: mean, yeah. A lot yeah, of back, that. How do how, how do we kind of um, and I want you to talk about that. But in, in in talking about that, how do we avoid that? How do we avoid kind of being duped by this search for meaning and significance? And find actual true meaning and significance. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that.
0: The, yeah, um, yeah. Becker uses the the term heroics um, in in more re- recent psychological research. They've, they've kind of traded that in for the term self esteem. And so in the series, I often kind of go back and forth. Becker Beckers talk about heroics, um, but probably most of us would just define that term as as a self-esteem, my my general sense of, of, of leading a meaningful, significant life. But yeah, his argument is that, is that, you know, we all want to, to be significant and, and be a hero in a certain sense, but obviously how do you, def- how do you define that? And it's obviously the culture steps in and says, it gives you narratives and, and meaning structures and says, you know, this is, so when you're talking about America, right, we often use the term, you know, these are our heroes and these are our exemplars and these are, you know um but we also talk about you know the everyday heroism I mean we're in the middle of election year here and and you'll hear from both candidates uh Romney and Obama um uh, the kind of the mythology of our country and it's not always uh the men and women in, in in the military it's it's not always the police officers the firemen although that was really big after 9/11 but it's the it's the everyday heroism right that you know the guy that that gets up every day and he packs his lunch pail. And, you know, so there's that kind of American work ethic and the, the, the small town values. And so we have these hero, we have these, these meaning systems. And the idea is that I just imbibe that, like the the air around me. And, and um, if I participate in those, those ways of life, um, I can look back and, and say to myself and my friends and family members and my culture steps in and, and says that, Hey, that's a life, well lived and um and it's not necessarily uh, becker's saying it's not necessarily saying that those aren't lives well lived his argument is though is that there's a there's a kind of existential vulnerability that sits at the bottom of it that that for for i think for some of us that are kind of more existential people we're, we're aware of that we get a sense that you know i, I put my whole life into this you know uh, business or i put my whole life into building this company or i've done all of this work I've published or i've created all this stuff but but you know you get the, you get kind of the voice of ecclesiastes sneaking in going you know what what is any of this going to last is it you know i, I mean I was really anxious and i thought this was the most important thing and i think there's moments in our lives where we face death when we age we were talking about our kids earlier when you Looking through the eyes of a new generation, there's, th- you know, and sometimes it's just kind of the late at night when you're alone, you just kind of think, "What? Well, what's the point of it all?" So, I, so there's a thinness there, and I think Becker thinks, you know, you might not ever get underneath the surface of this. Um, you can go pretty much from the cradle to the grave fairly oblivious that that you know um, you you were engaged in 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 that kind of pursuit, but. Um, but there's more pernicious consequences we'll get into in, in, you know, in a little bit. All that to say is I think the biblical language for what we're talking about is the principalities and powers. Yeah. That, that, that these are – there are kind of um, – and I, and I kind of rely on the work of uh, William Stringfellow a little bit here. And, and his, his argument is that all of these meaning-making structures from, from um, businesses to ideologies to beliefs and value systems – Really are just agents of uh, of of death because we're attaching ourselves to these things to feel to feel like we can transcend death. But but Becker's argument is that these things are a part of the of the creation as well. Um, I'll give you a concrete example of this. You know, like I, I work at a at a university. And, and obviously, when the university gets together, we have kind of a mythology about who we are and what we do and how everything we do is the most significant and amazing things, you know. Um, but any corporate entity is going to get together and kind of fill you with the kind of mythology, you know. And, and the idea here is that if you serve, if you serve us, your life will have made a difference.
1: And can I can I interject yeah, an example sure. here? There's just like the perfect <laughs> example. I was actually sitting. It was it's so funny. I was sitting at a restaurant that will remain unnamed for lunch one day wow. in the last week, and I was sitting there reading your series on the slavery of death and kind of going over the notes for us to do these interviews. And um, I had my earbuds in, listening to some music, some background music, but I could still hear that at the at a table kind of across the way there was like a manager's meeting at this fast food restaurant and it was just talking about the meaning. (laughs) I'm going to laugh and I don't mean to, this is not a, (laughs) this is not a put down to anybody, but it's just a perfect example of how we do this. They were talking about the meaning and significance of selling. (laughs) I just can't even hardly get it out of selling an extra tray of nuggets a day. And the fact that at the end of the year, they would have $25,000 added to their bottom line. And that was supposed to get everybody like jazzed up and yeah. man, this makes it worth my day to come to work. And, and I just sat there, you know, here I am reading like stuff about Ernest Becker and William Stringfellow, <laughs> And I'm just kind of going, Oh my gosh, it was a perfect example right here in front of me. Yeah. Right.
0: <laughs> well, it, it's, so it's kind of like, you know, so so and I can buy into that, right? We can all that's what that's what kind of string filler gets into. We can spend so I can just I can devote my life to kind of, you know, um, this institution and I can pour myself into it. I can get and I get all these self-esteem benefits. You know, I I'm I'm getting I'm getting blue ribbons, I'm getting promotions, I'm getting a pat on the back.
1: You know, but at the end
0: of the day, um when you know, if my institution or any business starts feeling the kind of the Darwinian pinch, you know, um, you know, I, I people get let go, and they go, wait yeah. a second, I, I, I uh, you know, think about this last recession, right? I, I spent forty years, you know, uh, working for this company, and then just like that, they let me go. And then you look back on it and go, what was I serving? Because mm-hmm. it, what you eventually realize is that that institution is governed by its own survival ethic. It, mm-hmm. It's governed by uh, the, the the logic of death, and so yeah. I was just serving another. In the language of Paul, another creature, another created thing. And and it, and it sapped my time and my energy. And, um, but for, you know, 40 years working for the man, I, I, it made me feel like my life had purpose and meaning. And it's only when those things that's, that, that's where the, that was talking about it being fragile while it works. Yeah. Um, it gets you through the day. Um, yeah. you can go through the day and be very busy. Um, and, and, uh. Feel like you had a good day, but it's very fragile when you face unemployment, or when you kind of face retirement, or when you just kind of face a moment in your life and you say, you know, why am I, you know, why am I doing this? Uh, What's the point of it? And it's not to deny that what I do, where somebody even is working at McDonald's, cannot do good work. What we're talking about here is when their identities get wrapped up into that work because they're hoping that this entity, this institution or ideology, will somehow be in it, that it will be uh unaffected by death and therefore yeah. by serving it i will have achieved some sort of a vicarious immortality mm. um yeah. uh but but that's where ecclesiastes comes in and says you know it's that's that's vanity
1: yeah you know and i, I think richard and what you're saying you bring out a good point because it's so easy to laugh at the example of selling more chicken nuggets as giving you meaning and significance that's like a that's really an easy one to pick on but you know the beyond the box podcast can become a really easy way of trying to gain meaning and significance you know the more the more listeners you get the more downloads you get the more comments you get the more facebook likes you get all of those things have a tendency if you're not careful to make you feel a sense of identity um, mm-hmm. that really isn't based in God. It's right. just a, it, it could even be about God, but it's not based in God. And, and, you know, you really brought this out. I thought beautifully when you talked about, you know, writing a book and, you know, I think, if, you know, working in the Christian industry, the book industry myself, I can see this over and over again with authors, you write a book and there really is, there is satisfaction in that. And there should be satisfaction yeah. in that work, but so many times it becomes your identity to where you're not, you don't put your pants on the same way. You don't, you know, you don't have to go to the bathroom anymore like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's this thing of now I'm something important. And maybe there's a beauty in those simpler examples because it's actually so easy to see. I can't base my identity in this because the culture is always kind of kicking me down mm-hmm. for having this menial job or this menial task. There's almost a blessing in that that you lose as you climb the corporate ladder, because it becomes so much easier to invest yourself in your work and think that somehow there's an immortality that kicks in at the end.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, now that I hear you think about that, I mean, I wonder about if, if that's why, um, uh, there, there's a focus on the, the, the poor and how the, the poor seem to have a better sense of what God's up to. And it might be because they're living a little closer to the, to the bone and and therefore wow. aren't, aren't are can see, and I think William Stringfeld and his work would argue this they see what death is doing much more directly um they're not able to cover it over with like you said these kind of um uh, the the trappings of success can hide the fact that at the end of the day you know um you, you can't leave any you know you can't take any of that with you um no yeah. um. Yeah. But but let me go back to what you're saying about like the podcast. Like so, obviously I'm a blogger, right? So you know, it's it's so it's not just that I'm building a a, uh, um, a sense of identity that's maybe not in God. It also leads to, to sinful practices. And so so to connect with the part one, we were talking about rivalry, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, I I'm a blogger, so I I look at other blogs that that you know are or more popular or get more comments. And so what happens is I find myself in a rivalrous situation. Um mm-hmm. because their success is some way diminishing me. Um and, and so therefore I want to somehow compete with that and I want to push further. And so so uh and so it's not just that I'm placing my identity in my blog. It's that, that my identity in my blog makes me inherently envious and jealous and mm-hmm. rivalrous and competitive and negative towards other human beings. And so that's kind of that thing we were talking about last last podcast, how this death-based identity eventually brings me into a sinful state of affairs. Hmm. Um, So it's not just that I'm neurotic. It's just that I'm inherently aggressive towards others. I don't want people to be more successful than I am.
1: Yeah, because, I I mean, that's the thing is when, you know, it it almost seems – kind of benign when you just, at the beginning, when you just start describing these neurotic fears, because it's like, well, you know, if we really, if our our situation really is that grave, then maybe it is better to cover it up. Maybe it is better to go for the gold watch at the end of 30 years of service and go for the book deal. And, and, you know, maybe it, maybe it is better, but that's, that's where it becomes a big deal Um, is this idea that it's not just about getting puffed up, but it's that it goes back to, like you said, the last podcast where the natural social condition of mankind is war, mm-hmm. be that nuclear war, be that trench warfare, or be that just the simple, you know, I want to put up bigger Christmas lights than my neighbor down the street, you know, right. any anything that brings us into rivalry. Now in saying that you really, um, you, you brought out the work of Arthur McGill, which I had, I had never, I wasn't familiar with him and what he talked about with eccentric identity Mm -hmm. and this, this just absolutely blew me away. I want to, um, I'd like to read just kind of, let me see. Well, actually, I thought I had a quote here. I don't have a quote, but you talked about that. Um, the, the eccentric identity is the opposite of the identity of possession. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of, kind of tell us a little bit about the, the difference between having an identity of possession and an eccentric identity?
0: Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, uh, yeah, McGill's McGill's argument in a book I think called Life, I think it's called Death and Life in American Theology, and he um, his basic argument is is that because of death, we we feel like the only way we can fend death off is to um, uh, to possess and own and dominate some part of reality, um, and so uh, that makes us inherently acquisitive. It makes us inherently uh, paranoid that people are going to take things away from me. So my whole identity is based upon. What I possess, own, and dominate, and um, and that puts me into this aggressive or violent situation uh, with other people, and I think we described that pretty well last last podcast. So the question is, if that's the root of a sinful identity and a satanic identity, then then what he does is he looks at the the gospels of Jesus and he he's, he comments on how Jesus. We don't get a lot of like interior monologues. With Jesus, You know, there, there, there's a sense like you don't get a lot of what was going on inside of him. Uh, what, no
1: thought bubbles. <laughs>
0: yeah, no thought bubbles. And, and his argument was is because the reason why we don't get a sense of the interior life of Jesus, because Jesus constantly says that his identity is received, received by uh, or from the Father. Um, and so since Jesus does not possess anything, not even himself, he stands in no aggressive or violent relationship with any other human being. You can't dispossess Jesus mm. of anything. You can't take anything away from him. And ultimately, mm. and I think in, in, in part of this, well, one, one is symptom of this is that that means Jesus can fundamentally be non-anxious around mm. people. He's, he is um, uh, relaxed around people. You can't threaten Jesus and nothing you can do uh no no success no no you know your success won't make Jesus envious you know your uh you couldn't um you know you know Pilate threatens him with death and Jesus you know still not anxious and and so McGill argues that his lack of anxiety is due to the fact that um he doesn't own himself and receives his identity from God. So his identity is not based internally, but it's based externally, you know, which is that idea of an eccentric identity, uh, uh, an identity based on the outside of the self in this place, you know, based on God. And so that's a pivotal move in the series because it's trying to kind of move into more of a, a positive uh, direction. Um, to argue about if if we're going to learn how to love people, we're going to have to have an identity that isn't built upon anxiety, mm. um, and uh, and that vision of McGill's vision of that kind of he calls it an ecstatic or an eccentric identity is is a, is one way to think about it, overcoming mm. that anxiety.
1: You brought out something when you talked about Jesus's ex, uh, eccentric identity that really. They really hit me because one of the big things we've talked about on this podcast in the last couple of years is um, the idea of nonviolence that Steve and I, my co-host on the podcast, we've really come to completely believe that God is completely nonviolent. Right. And that therefore that's the call that one of the big calls of discipleship is to an ethic of nonviolence. Um, and, you know, that's been a pretty controversial stance to take, you know, especially, especially in the American South. I mean, we have listeners all over that maybe that's not as big a deal for them, but uh, in the American South, that is a, that is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. You talk about because of Jesus's eccentric identity, that that is actually what enabled him to be nonviolent. Is that because of basically not only is his identity outside of himself, but because his identity is outside of himself and, He therefore he doesn't have an identity of possession. He has nothing left to lose. I mean, is that kind of the idea of why why that's leads to his nonviolence?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what I argue because it goes back to kind of what we talked about last podcast about about perfect love casting out fear. Mm. He can love, and he can give his life away um, because he's not um, he's not. and it's not to say, and I get into this later on in the series, it's not to say that, because that, uh, quickly when we start moving in these nonviolent directions, people say, you know, so should you just throw your life away? I mean, is there no, no value to life at all? You know, shouldn't you protect life and things like that? But it's, So it's not necessarily to say that, that uh, you might choose to live. Um, the question is, what's the, what's the motivation? But because if the motive, if you're choosing to, if you're making a choice for self-preservation or any other choice based on fear, um, you're just not going to have, uh, you know, good outcomes, you know, or Christianly outcomes from that. Again, that's back, that's, that's, that choices out of fear are going to be kind of Darwinian choices that you're making. But yeah, so since Jesus is not operating out of fear, um, he can be. He's in a non-rivalrous, non-violent, non-aggressive position to any other human being. Um, and that means even if, you know, Pilate says, don't you know I have the power to kill you? Um, I have the power to set you free. You know, you know that that's not a threat to Jesus. There's nothing in that, that. And see, this goes back to what we were talking about last podcast again. Remember, it's Satan uses the fear of death to push us around. Mm. And so you see Pilate in that instance saying, hey, He's using the fear of death. Don't you know I have the power to kill you to to, to push or bully or get Jesus to to do something? Um, But because Jesus is not afraid, um, Pilate has no leverage on him. And so Jesus's self-donation, his self-giving is motivated out of love. It's not motivated out of fear. He's not... Uh, cowed into giving his life away. He's not, you know, intimidated into giving his life away. Um, he can make that choice. Um, mm. And so, in many ways, um, he's free. Um, uh, and, and so, that's why love is also associated with uh, the sense of freedom uh, because we are able to uh, make choices um, without being compelled. There's a great, have you seen, um, what is that movie of gods and gods and men about the uh, monks in the, uh, that city was in the middle East. Um, I don't know, it was Albania I'm thinking of, but it was, it was a recent, um, based on a true life story where, um, they were in a kind of a predominantly, uh, Muslim country. And uh, fundamentalism was taking over. And so there was a lot of persecution of Christians was breaking out. So a small band of these uh, Christian monks, um, five or six of them, had to make a decision to stay or leave. And, um, and this is based on a true story. Um, uh, and uh, they, they decided to stay. And there's a really poignant scene in the movie where the leader of the monastery is talking to one of the older guys about you know you know maybe we should go you know maybe it's in our self preservation to just leave and because it's getting kind of dangerous for us Christians um, but they ultimately decide to stay uh, but in, in this one scene the guy says um, and the reason why he says he goes I'm a I'm a free man I can choose to stay I'm not doing it out of fear so it's a great scene that kind of illustrates a lot of what what the series is all about is that. If you can transcend that fear, you can actually make a loving choice. And that might actually mean nonviolently giving your life away.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. So but that really without that freedom, you don't have that choice. You know, you just as you were talking, that just a connection kind of a synapse just kind of flashed through my brain that kind of made a connection. Um, that scripture where Jesus says, no one can take my life from me. I have the power mm-hmm. to to lay it down and the power to take it up again that I've received from my father. That really is the perfect example of eccentric identity is this, this idea that, um, if I don't possess my life, you can't possess it either. Right. You, you can't take it away. And so anything I do is simply a surrender to the will of God. Kind of when Jesus does finally go to the cross, you know, that father into, into your hands, I commit my spirit Mm -hmm. that he's, that he's, um, kind of expressing his trust in the fact that I don't have to watch my back. I don't have to get into the Darwinian struggle because my uh, father's going to do that for me because father's interest, my interest is father's interest. Mm -hmm. There's, there's not this separation there.
0: Yeah. And and I would say that final move of Jesus is the perfect expression of his identity into your hands. I, I I give my spirit and, Mm -hmm. um, uh, And because his identity and his spirit rested with the father, um, and he had faith in the father, then he could, he could die. Mm. Mm. And that's in many ways, that's the pivotal decision that we all face moment by moment.
1: You know, as we're talking about this, and I know we're going to harp on this over and over again throughout the series, because like you said last night, or on the last podcast, which was for us last night, um, You know, you said that really the only theological conversation when it comes down to it is between fear and love. And I'm realizing more and more that at least for so much of my life, my own theology was driven by fear um, that you just realize that that really is that is such a seismic shift because it affects every single every decision we make. Everything we believe about ourselves, everything we believe about God, um, I, I just can't overstate how important what you're saying is. The whole I, I know First John says it, perfect love casts out fear, but sometimes we don't realize that, I would almost go to the point of saying anything, well, I think I would go to the point of saying this, anything that we do out of a motivation of fear, even if it's service to God, is out of a wrong motive and can actually lead to sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I'm kind of well, feeling and, from the series.
0: Yeah. And I would think um, kind of what you were saying earlier about, you know, Peter Rollins's book Insurrection. And he talks about the deus ex machina. And, and that's that's uh, I, I think it's Latin for, you know, the the, the god of the machine. And, and it refers to how um, in, in, in Greek plays, they would whenever the plots got so convoluted and there'd be no way to resolve the plot. Um, they would just drop in God, a deity, and the deity would kind of wave a magic <laughs> wand, and, and then everything would you know get better. So if some you know, so if somebody died, the God would bring it back to life, and so it just kind of fixed everything. And so his, his argument in that book, and, and and Ernest Becker would make a similar argument, um, is that um, is is that obviously these like you were talking about the cultural value systems of America and the mythology of America. Um, is that, you know, that's intimately tied up with, with God and religion. Um, mm. in that, in that, in that, uh, you know, one of the things I do in this series is talk about how in many ways, what we name as God, um, is, is really not God is, is really, again, this, um, projection in the sky to help us overcome our death anxiety. And, mm. and, and so in many senses, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an idol and, which connects with what you just said is that that's probably why there's so much fear involved in religion because it's still it's still trapped by the slavery, the fear of death, um, mm. and 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 that's that's the hardest and scariest part is to think about to question the ways in which we have used God as a anxiety buffer um, or even as a part of our self-esteem project.
1: Definitely, definitely. You know, and in talking about this with this, um, Jesus, Jesus, you know, his eccentric identity, how we're to, how we're to kind of gain from that example and follow in that in the footsteps, you talked a little bit about, um, the renunciation of winning and the fact that I don't need to win the fact that the winning and the losing, um, does this also kind of play into, uh, some of our senses of boundaries, not only the, the winning and losing, but the us and the them. Mm-hmm. This idea that if I don't, that I don't have to draw these tight boundaries around my space and define who's in, who's out. Because if God owns my identity, then it's kind of, you know, all truth is, is God's truth for lack of a better term. That everything, everything that's beautiful, everything that, anything that's, that smells of God, I don't have to put it to a, to a theology test, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? The renunciation of winning? Well,
0: I mean, there's a lot of things that can be said. Let, let me, let me connect it to what you're talking about with, with the, the, the boundaries and the insiders and the outsiders, because, because um, the, the, Ernest Becker's follow-up book to the denial of death is a book called escape from evil. And, and in, and he makes a kind of tragic conclusion. He argues that if these world views, these cultural value system worldviews, are what give us meaning and they give us significance. Um, the trouble with that is, is that when our worldview and our value systems come into conflict with somebody who holds other values and other, other, another worldview, they, they are inherently a threat because their mere existence suggests that there are many. Ways of life. There's many ways of, of of there's many values. There's many different kinds of gods, and it suddenly makes us realize that well, maybe my whole worldview and my God and all the projects of self-esteem in my culture are arbitrary, uh, and maybe they're not eternal, uh, or or uh, maybe they don't confer immortality like I was led to believe, and that's scary. Mm, and so what yeah. we do, uh, what we do in the language of Um, some researchers in psychology uh, who work in a theory called terror management theory, um, they, they, they describe what we do next is worldview defense. And so in worldview defense uh, in the face of that implicit criticism by out group members, we denigrate out group members um, and, and support our in group members. And Mm so, so Becker concludes that, that, that book by saying that's the, that's the tragedy of, of the human predicament is that the, the things that make life meaningful, our value systems are the things that inexorably bring us into conflict and violent situations with those who do not share our values. Mm. Um, And so there's always going to be these violent clashes of, of worldviews. And, and so, uh, but again, so again, you're saying what it goes back to what you were saying about the, the natural state of man being one of war, but this is not like a, fighting over the breadcrumbs. Right. The, this, this is a violence that's brought about by an neurotic fear that my, my value system is being criticized. And then we find that existentially unsettling. And so, um, war here is being produced by ideological clashes. And I think that's very important for Americans to hear about how these ideological clashes, value systems are coming into play and how we, um, demonize outgroup members, um, I mean, I I think you see it in American political discourse with the way there's kind of an ideology on the left and there's an ideology on the the right. And um, both of them are kind of messianic in the way they demand loyalty. And so, therefore, the other side are a group of infidels, which is why I think there's so much um, anger and anxiety about, you know, the American in American political debate, um, and so therefore there is this need to win, mm. win the next election, um, mm. to get that other guy out, our guy in. We got to win, we got to win. And the question is, why? Why? What are you trying to win? You know, mm. um, because beneath it again is that messianic sense that well, you know, we can do it. We can build a society that will what you know, last, last forever. See, we are I think we're tricking ourselves into thinking we're building Zion here, um, on earth. And that's not to say we shouldn't try to make the kingdom come. Sure. Earth. I am saying though, that, that, uh, that is God's doing and not our own. Um, yeah. and so, so, uh, but I think you can only step out of the process of winning. And, um, uh, uh, by renouncing the ways we strive for significant self-esteem because otherwise, mm. if somebody does something differently, we're always going to feel that that's a criticism and therefore want to defend our way of life.
1: Mm. Yeah, You talk about how self-esteem is really how it's adultery. It's serving the powers. It's mm-hmm. um, how, because, because of the putting our identity in these things that really are just false gods, that, you know, it does it does bring us into conflict because it causes us, we think that we're fighting for God. I mean, like, if you look at the left and the right right now, you know, um, so many times both of them think that they're fighting for God. And they both will use God language, mm-hmm. you know, to, to kind of cover that up, which really is, it's really just a dupe. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know of a better way to say it. It's just yeah. really a dupe. And yeah. it causes... It causes, it, it taps into, I think what you're saying in this series is it taps into those existential fears and kind of um, gives us a cause because mm-hmm. we're always looking for a cause. We're always looking for something to fight for because once again, we think, okay, well, you know, I might be gone in 50, 60, 70 years, but this cause is going to live on, right. be it the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, whatever it is. Mm-hmm
0: or, or and, and i think and obviously the 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 one that seems the most transcendent is the nation right you know that yeah. that that uh, america will la- you know will be around you know forever but you know rome thought it was going to be around forever you know yeah. it was around that's right you know, and and it was a great shock to everybody at that time when it fell uh, you know it just it, it seemed like the the world was coming to an end that, you know and and I have no idea what's going to be around in 500 or a thousand years, you know, but, but, but again, this is goes back to what Stringfellow says. America is, is a part of the created order. It's a part of the fall. And so to serve it is to serve the creature, not the creator. Mm. Um, and, and, and so that I think is the, yeah, it, I think that's the trap we get into is I think that's why God and country get so conflated. Um, the, 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 the country the project of the nation is the, is the dominant mythology that, that we want to attach ourselves to. Cause that seems the most long lasting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Because, because you see that you see the mythology, right? We see the, the uh, honoring of our history, you know, it seemed that, you know, this, this thing seems to be pretty permanent. So we could, if we attach it and we feel like we've contributed to this thing, then somehow I will, you know, be able to survive death itself.
1: And it seems like we really do that even, even maybe with something that we think is more long lasting. Even with Christianity itself. I mean, like you know, living in North Carolina last week, you know, there was the the whole fight uh, for the vote over Amendment One, which oh, was yeah. whether or not to you know add add a clause to the Constitution that banned gay marriage. And you know, to hear a lot of Christians talk in that debate, it was it was something we had to win because a a loss. A loss in this particular vote would be a loss in the kingdom of God. So it gets so conflated that God gets so, we don't even realize that our God, that we think we're serving and calling Jesus and, and worshiping and all of this kind of thing, and even reading into our Bible, <laughs> more Jesus than exegesis, right. um, that, that's actually just extending the adultery and not, mm-hmm. that, it, that it's not true religion at all. You, you touched a minute ago, Richard, on um, terror management theory. Uh-huh. And I know I watched a fascinating documentary. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I know you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. I know the
0: documentary. I don't know the name of it, though. but
1: It came out 2003 or so. I'll, I'll have to put that in the notes on the, on the podcast. But anyway, fascinating documentary on terror management theory. And they showed some examples of some uh, studies that had been done that kind of proved these things. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe give us some ideas of... Of how this has been proved in the lab?
0: Yeah, um, uh, uh, yeah. These are the researchers: uh, 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 Solomon, Pazinski, and Greenberg are kind of the three leading guys that have done a lot of this this work. And um, so, you know, one of the hypotheses that they've tested is this worldview defense hypothesis. That and, and so you know the argument that Ernest Becker makes is that our cultural worldviews. Um, are fundamentally anxiety buffers uh, ways of fending off death anxiety um, by attaching our life stories to these overarching transcendent narratives well I mean how do you prove such a thing I mean, I mean that seems very you know
1: ethereal <laughs> yeah,
0: right right so so they've done, what they do in the studies is they they bring people in, um, uh, to a laboratory condi- uh, condition and, and who, who kind of have a cultural worldview. So if they're American participants, then obviously then, you know, their worldview is, you know, the American worldview. Um, uh, and so what they then do is they have a control group and then they have an experimental group and the experimental group goes to what's called a mortality salience condition. And in the mortality salience condition, they are, they are asked to reflect upon what it's going to be like if they die, you know, what's, what, you know, so you write a little essay about, you know, the experience of dying and what do you think is going to happen to you? So essentially they, they make you uh, uh, aware of your own death and mortality. They, they prime that. And the other group isn't thinking about that at all. They then engage in a variety of tasks, often um, um, engaging without group members. And so in one study um, that was conducted during the first Gulf war, the first war in Iraq, they had American students um, assessing essays written by ostensibly an Iraqi uh, position in a, in a pro-American. So it's kind of like a pro-American position. There's one that's more critical. And then they're, they're asked to rate quality of the essay, the intelligence of the, um, of the essayist. And what they find in these studies is that when mortality is made salient, when you're asked to think about your own death, you become much more derogatory toward any criticism of your worldview. You become more patriotic, more pro-American, and therefore uh, more defensive towards your in-group members. So the pro- Kind of
1: dig, dig your heels in, so to speak. Yeah,
0: right. So, so the American day is great, and and um, and and the guy who wrote it is really, really smart, and he's probably a really good person, and this person that was critical of America, they're dumb and they're not so good person and and it's really not a will retin essay and 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 but you don't see the control group do that and so so the evidence there is that is that when we are made to think about our death we become the idea we we, yeah entrench in our ideologies we want to you know in the face of death we want to believe these things to be true and that suggests that the reason why we want these things to be true is that we're using them to manage our anxiety and when our anxiety comes out we become much more hostile uh, towards outgroup members. Um, and and uh, one study that was interest, of interest to in me is that Christian participants um, go through a mortality savings manipulation, and then they were uh, rating uh, potential job applicants. And these applications were essentially equal. They used procedures to make sure they were all pretty much equal. But the main thing they manipulated is the religion of the, of the applicant. So these were Christian participants rating uh, fellow Christian applicants or a Jewish applicant. And they also included embedded in the ratings of these applicants, they embedded um, uh, classic anti-Semitic descriptors of Jews like, you know, miserly, stingy, you know. Um, and what they found is after the mortality salience manipulation, the Christian participants were more willing to endorse these anti-Semitic descriptions of, uh, of the Jewish, um, applicant. So again, what you see there is anti-Semitism being tied to a death anxiety. Um, and obviously that's a, you know, as a Christian psychologist, that's an interesting finding. Um, that, that I've spent a lot of time, you know, following up on and looking at, but it basically illustrates how our belief systems, even Christianity itself is really being used not to call us into love, but simply to as a, as another form of selfish, I'm using it selfishly. I'm using it as, as, as a, for my own anxiety management. And so you, you can't love if that's the way, if your faith is based on anxiety and fear, of death, right? If your religion is motivated by coping with a fear of death, then how are you going to ever become Christ like? Because anything that makes you anxious is going to bring out these these uh hostile actions uh, towards other people.
1: So it ends up basically that Christianity just becomes about a it really becomes about this us them thing and making sure that we protect We protect our, ourself and our stuff and our beliefs and basically our identity from the demonized other, from, from the threat of the other. And so instead of, instead of it becoming about the fact that Jesus came to save the world, to love the world, to, Mm -hmm. to teach us how to love the world, that instead I'm wondering if that's where. And I hope I, I hope in doing this, I'm not demonizing another group in the name of trying to keep that from happening. Yeah, but it's always sort of tricky. It's it's so easy to do that. Yeah. Um, but I, I, you have to wonder if that's not where this whole um, battle over you know over stringently fundamentalist understandings of creeds and doctrines. Uh-huh. So it, it's almost like we've got to protect ourselves. We've got to. We've got to define the boundaries to make sure we don't let anybody in that's not safe when it seems like Jesus was doing the exact opposite. I mean, he's being accused as being the friend of sinners, and he's hanging out with prostitutes. And, you know, Mm -hmm. to me, what you're saying is it's actually pretty darn scary to think that the average Christian, that 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 would be our average response, you know, without being aware of it and without um, learning some way to go against the flow of this thing. That's really just a natural reaction that even believers in Jesus would have. Now, in saying that, one thing you touched on under under your section on terror management that really struck me uh, was your ta- your, the way you talked about doubt and how doubt was such an integral part of our faith, um, that, that doubt is really the source of tolerance. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know we've, I know we've set up the problem of cultural heroics, the problem of those, those cultures coming into conflict. How does doubt in our own belief system kind of help us to be more tolerant of others and help us to open ourselves more to love? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, I mean, it goes to the issue again of, of kind of a uh, of worldview defense because the worldview defense is motivated by a fear that the other and this capital O other um, relativizes my belief system, that they, they are a threat to my belief system. And so what happens is that anxiety makes me fundamentalist. And, and you're kind of seeing that in the world today, right? That there was this sense that, you know, after the enlightenment, there this, there's be great, there's this great march towards reason and everybody would become real, you know, um, and we haven't seen that. I mean, I think most people would say that one of the things we're struggling with the most in modernity is fundamentalisms, all kinds of of fundamentalisms.
1: Be that liberal or conservative. Right,
0: right. And and so the question is, why is that? Why why would modernity uh, make us more fundamentalistic? And and the terror management people would say because in modernity, when you're dealing with pluralism of worldviews, that's a really disconcerting thing. When you have Muslims interacting with Jews, interacting with Christians, interacting with all these kinds of people – it kind of makes you just question who's right. You know, who, who, you know, is anything right? And so, so it's really comforting when somebody comes along and says, I'll tell you what's right. This is the truth. You know, this is God's truth and it's as clear as day. And, and there is a, and, and, and you and I, you know, I mean, both of us have experience with kind of conservative Christianity. There is a comfort in yes. knowing you're right. And there's a comfort in having the answers. Exactly. There, there's a comfort in having. And there's a comfort in knowing you're going to heaven and everybody else is going to hell. It's real sad those poor yeah. people. But there's a there's an existential comfort in knowing that you are, you are part of the in group um, on that. Um, and, and so, but it's still again fear driven at, at the end of at the end of the day. And so, therefore, creates those hostile fundamentalist, Reactions about outgroup members—the kind of the, the Christians that we see that, that don't seem very loving, but seem very hateful—and um, uh, and so, how are we going to be hospitable to outgroup members? Um, and the only way to be hospitable is to, is to is to be be willing to allow their views, their lives, their things to to put ours to come alongside ours. And, and and so that experience of of being willing to entertain their view uh, creates the experience of of doubt. But so you're trading off your certainty um, for more anxiety. Mm. Um, there there's a price to pay, you know, with doubt. And that is you don't have all the answers, and and uh, you, you you perhaps don't know what's going to happen when you die as certainly as you once did. Um, but you're, you're willing to trade off, you're willing to undergo that anxiety and lack of certainty to uh, be nonviolent toward the person who believes differently than you do. And, and fundamentally that means respecting them and actually legitimately listening to them and undergoing the risk of them edu- educating you. That's, that's existentially scary. And most people aren't willing to, Allow that to happen. You know, you're not really going to listen to somebody from another world religion. It's too threatening. Right, right. Um, uh, but those who can and, and willing to endure the anxiety of it are probably in a better position to be loving um, towards those people. Um, um, and that's not to say that that if you know if you believe believe uh, strongly uh, that you can't you know be a loving, welcoming person. Uh, um, sure. I'm not... I'm not I'm just saying, though, that, that uh, the, the thirst for existential certainty uh, that we see kind of manifested in kind of a dogmatic or fundamentalist Christianity is, is probably not the route to being the most loving, compassionate person in a pluralistic society. Yeah,
1: I, I think so much of it, um, you know, when it, when it comes right down to it, I think there are a lot, a lot of loving fundamentalists. I was once a loving fundamentalist. <laughs> um, I loved people, but I think that there is, there's something about it that at the end of the day, when you are pushed into, and in, when you are backed into a corner, you will ultimately choose your doctrine over people. You'll choose your belief system over people because it's a safety thing. It's a fear thing, you know? If if um, you making sure you've got all your theological I's dotted and T's crossed, is your how you get your entrance into heaven, mm-hmm. then, you know, there is an existential threat to at the end of the day having a conversation or, or being engaged with someone else. I mean, I've even had you know, I've had people tell me, you've got to be careful who you talk to, you've got to be careful who you read, you know, kind of trying to rein me back in, so so to speak. Um, because there's just this there's this fear that if if you even have contact with the other that um, somehow you'll be contaminated. And I, you know, at this point, I know we're talking about the slavery of death, but I just have to put a plug in for your book unclean. <laughs> We've <laughs> got to do a podcast on that sometime, Richard. All right. Um, but just to, just to kind of tease it out a little bit and, and hopefully get people to, to look more into this. You do such good work in that book of actually really addressing this subject of, of um, boundaries and borders and, Kind of how we, how we tend to demonize the other, how we tend to uh, try and maintain our purity by maintaining our borders. Mm-hmm. Um, I just really want to encourage people if you want to kind of, if you want to dig into this a little bit deeper, they really need to pick up your book, Unclean. Um, great, great book. And like I say, I'm I'm going to twist your arm and hopefully do another podcast with you on that sometime. <laughs> oh, let's talk about it. Yeah, and there is and there is some con-
0: connections in that. I mean, that last part of Unclean gets into the yes. relationship of purity and death and mortality. So there are there are connections uh, of, of there. Um, Definitely, I, I always joke. Everything I eventually write comes back to some connection with existential anxiety or death issues or whatever. So I don't know. If <laughs> well,
1: like you said, if the theolo- if the theological conversation is fear and love, and yeah, yeah. at the end of the day all of our books got to end there somewhere, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah.
0: So <laughs> speaking
1: of uh, ending in fear and love, part 3 we're going to get into perfect love casting out fear and hopefully kind of tie this all together for everyone so that we see not just I feel like we've really unpacked what the problem is and we've kind of put our fingers on the pulse of what the problem is, but maybe we can talk a little bit more creatively about solutions and Mm -hmm. maybe living into a truly Christian identity in the next podcast. So hopefully you guys can join us for that one. Richard, thanks a lot for joining us for this one. Appreciate all your input, brother. You got it, man. Oh man. Good, good stuff. I hope you enjoyed this conversation half as much as I did. Just so many great ideas that Richard brings out in this podcast. Um, Gosh, I just want to encourage you guys, if you get a chance to read the book Unclean that we mentioned in this podcast, really, really great stuff. Richard has just done a great job of really helping us understand the difference between mercy and sacrifice and how those two trajectories that we see in the Bible really don't intersect very well. Really, really encourage you to go get the book. And please join us for part three of this podcast. I think it'll really tie a lot of things together and just kind of make sense of the whole thing for you. Richard, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversations. Look forward to many more in the future. Just really, really appreciate your insight into so many things. And guys, I just really appreciate all of you who listen. Thank you so much for taking the time to stick us in your ears, to stick us in your car, on your computer at work, wherever you listen. I just so appreciate you taking the time to really hear a lot of these ideas that for many of us, I know for me, many times are very new and sometimes feel novel. But thank you guys for joining us and and taking the time to really think through a lot of these issues that we talk about. I know we're not always going to agree on everything, and I am completely okay with that. I just so appreciate the fact that you guys would take the time to not only listen, but also interact with us. If you want to do that, we've got several great ways for you to interact with us. You can go to the homepage, our website, which is beyondtheboxpodcast.com. Um, You'll see all of our previous episodes on that website. You'll also see this episode. If you want to interact with this episode or any previous episode, you can put your comments there, your questions, your disagreements, anything you want to put. We welcome your feedback and we welcome your interaction. Um, Also, if you go to Facebook, Facebook's probably the best place to dialogue with just a great community of people that have really... um, just really developed into a spiritual community for me over the last four years. That website is facebook.com slash beyond the box. You'll see we post all of our podcast episodes there, so you can interact with the podcast episode on the thread that you see where you can actually listen to the episode. Um, You know, like I say, put your disagreements, your questions, your comments Whatever you would like to interact with um, on there, feel free to do so. Also, if you just if you've got something that's been on your mind that you've been thinking about, we would love for you just to start a thread on that Facebook page and just let people interact with you. It's a great safe place to interact about just um, controversial theological issues or maybe a question that you've had regarding Scripture that you'd like to kind of put out there for the community to. to kick back and forth, we just really welcome your input there and just hope that you'll find that a safe place to interact with other believers who are on this journey outside the box. Um, Now you can also, another thing we'd love for you to do is to put your idea submissions we have a great page on our website that just says idea submissions at the top. If you click that, you can leave a comment, maybe for a future podcast episode that you'd like to see us do, maybe a person that you'd like to see us interview or a topic that you'd like Steve and I to talk about. We'd love to hear your interaction. Um, as you probably well know, if you've listened to podcasts for very long, we don't always take every idea, not because they're not great, but sometimes because we just don't We don't know if we're qualified to really talk about it, or maybe it's something that we've not thought through. So sometimes you guys are ahead of us, (laughs) which I really appreciate, Um, but we'd love to get your idea submissions there. Now, another great thing we'd love you to do is you can call our telephone number, which is a, a neat way to kind of leave a voice comment that we can either play on the podcast, or you can do it just personally for me and Steve to hear as a way to kind of put your comment out there without having to sit down in front of a computer and type. Maybe you're uh, driving down the road and you have a, you have just an epiphany that you'd like to share. We'll pull off on the side of the road and um, dial our phone number and you can leave a comment and we'll be glad to share it with our listeners. That number is 626 24 box. That's 626-246-6269. 626 626-246- 6269. Now if you don't want to call the number you can actually go to beyondtheboxpodcast.com and you'll see a little widget on the right hand side that says call me. If you click that type your name and phone number in there and hit submit then our answering service will actually call you back and let you leave a message without you having to call us. So that's another great way to interact with us. Um if you want to sign up for our Twitter feed, which basically just posts when we new ha- have new episodes up or maybe when we post something on the Facebook page, you can go to twitter.com slash BTB podcast and that'll get you hooked up with our Twitter feed. I just thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen once again. Thank you so much for your interactions. Love you guys, appreciate you guys. I just thank you so much for joining us on this journey as we travel outside the box. Dr. Richard Beck, you are the man. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast with us. Can't wait for you guys to hear part three. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.